This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Visit JabberjawMedia.com for more shows like this one. This month, Intronaut released their sixth full-length Fluid Existential Inversions via Metal Blade Records, featuring some of the most dramatic and epic sounds of their career. The album includes keyboards for the first time in the band's history, along with a guest appearance by Ben Sharp of Cloudkicker, resulting in a unique, finished product that stands apart from Intronaut's catalog. Purchase your copy of Fluid Existential Inversions now at MetalBlade.com slash Intronaut. Once again, guys, don't miss this record. Fluid Existential Inversions now. MetalBlade.com slash Intronaut. It's the Metal Sucks Podcast with your hosts, Petter Speich, Brandon Hahn, and Jocelyn Sharp. Metal Sucks Podcast. Hello, friends out there. It is I, your host, Petter Speich. I am always joined by... My name is Brandon Hahn, and you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at your buddy Gooch. And... Jocelyn Sharp. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Jocelyn Sharp. That's J-O-Z-A-L-Y-N, sharp like a sharp knife. And make sure to follow our other co-host, Sylvia Alvarado, at It's the Sylvia on Twitter and Instagram. Follow me if you like, at Rise to Offend, Facebook and Twitter, Rise to Offend Official on Instagram. This week, we got none other than Devin Townsend back on the show. Just a fantastic chat. We are here to talk about and promote the North American tour that is coming out here. It's starting February 26th. It's running all the way to March 25th. He will be joined by the Contortionists and Haken. So make sure if you haven't picked up tickets, you guys do, because dates are selling out across uh, North America, if I may. So, But before we get into that interview with Devin, let's talk a little bit about the Metal Sucks news. Now, I'm not a Motley Crue fan, so I have no issue making fun of Vince Neil on a weekly basis. But, but this week, he just... Silver plattered us with a wonderful thing. It's now explain so... to me what this video even is. <laughs> Jocelyn was telling me there's yeah. something here. Jocelyn's up on the social media garbage. What is this? Exactly? Okay, so this is a cameo. So cameo is a it's a service online where your favorite celebrities, mostly like B and C celebrities. Yeah, so it's not your favorite celebrity. It's, it's probably like your, your sixth mom, or choice. your like stepmom, your your dad's second girlfriend's favorite celebrity. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you can pay them like a hundred to like five hundred dollars. And they'll record a, like a video message for you. So people do like happy birthdays or like congratulations on the wedding and stuff like that. And Vince Neil <laughs> got a request yeah. for a happy birthday. So he got requested. We got the audio for this, right? He got requested for a happy birthday. Now <laughs> It makes me laugh harder when I think that someone paid for this. Yeah, so someone like, paid yeah. for this. And this is what Vince Neil gave him. Let's hear it. Hey, Decker. This is Vince Neil. I want to say uh, happy birthday, brother. Uh, this is actually from uh, uh, Christian, Mom, Ethan, and Blake. So uh, keep on rocking, shout the devil, and uh, and do yeah, do some feel good stuff in four in big old big old four o you man. All right, see you later. Big old four o you man. Four o you man. Big old four o you man. It's so funny because it has the same like cadence and emotional 
tension in the message as if he's it sounds like he's calling his son that he hasn't spoken to because of his alcoholism he's like (laughs) like, hey "Hey, Duggar how you doing man (laughs) hey man your mom mom texted me today and said it was your birthday (laughs) and you get out there and do some home sweet home stuff I and love he, that he said, you, shout at the devil. Shout at the, get out of there. I would, I would have used a live wire. Yeah, yeah, I was going to, you I, just cut me off. Like, yeah, I was like, get yeah. out of there and be a live wire, you <laughs> son of a boo. Now, I didn't think it was that bad. That was one take. <sighs> so funny. Come on. It, it, it wasn't was one that take. bad. It was, it was, it wasn't he that literally bad. said, Dude. he just started saying song titles. He's not good at improv. <laughs> yeah. He's he not got, good at improv. He got paid it's $150. You can't do two takes. He, he said, a big O four O you man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, like, yeah. Get <laughs> out of there and do some feel good stuff. Again, he was improv trying to be cool to, I believe his name was Blake. No, his name was Tucker, but it, <laughs> but the way he pronounced it was Taco. Yeah. Hey, Doug. Play it again. Did he say Taco? Taco, play it again. Hey, Tucker. This is okay. It's Tucker. It sounds like Taco. It says Tucker, but dude, it does sound like Taco. (laughs) Do it again. Do it again. Do it again. Taco. Hey, Taco. <laughs> hey, I hear it. I hear Taco. I hear hey, it. Taco. Hey, Taco. Sour cream at the devil. If, you know. If I, was, if I was on this cameo thing, I would totally do videos like that, that yeah. bad. Hey, Why Taco. would you give a shit? Well, I'm not I'd saying like, he should. I'm just saying it is hilarious. First of all, it's the frame. You have to go to metalsucks.net and watch it because the framing of the video is hilarious. First like, off, I love how he's wearing an NRA hat. It's like, so funny. Like, He's like on the balcony wait, 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 of a, wait, wait, wait. A, a hotel. It looks like a weekly hotel. It yeah. even it's like a budget nice suites. <laughs> yeah. It's like it's like Vince Neil and the person living next it's to him is on the N- run from the law. It's not an NRA. Hub. Oh, I thought it, it was. It says NFR. Oh, NFR. Okay, oh, that's National almost, Finals Road. That's just as rednecky. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm that's just saying. just as rednecky. So he's into hey, bull riding. What's up, uh, what's up, Taco? Hey, Taco, live moss, man. Fourth meal. <laughs> and he does it like when you're when you Facetime your grandma. You know, like he has that like all forehead framing. It's yeah. very funny, and it's just very indicative to how old he is. It's not even the fact of how old he is because it's like at least get at least look like you can walk down the street. Hey, you shouted the devil, man. Hey, I thought it was cool. You guys are talking shit about the framing. Again, I'm the one that doesn't like like Motley Crue or Vince Neil here, but uh, I'll tell you this right now. He had it framed where he can show Taco behind him. He's like way up in the sky. He gave him like a good little like kind of look. Vince Neil, I want to say... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Play, play more, play more. Hey, Decker, this is Vince Neil. I want to say happy birthday, brother. Happy birthday, Uh, brother. From uh, uh, Christian mom, Ethan, and Blake. So uh, keep on rocking, shout the devil, and. uh, I just, dude, I wish it was just the guy from Poison where he's like, hey, it was uh, Taco, every rose has its taco. Yeah. Brett Michaels, yeah. Except for he'd be like that because he'd be in diabetic shock, not because yeah. he's drunk. Hey, <laughs> make sure you do the unskinny bop. Hey, you, uh, hey, Taco, hit me with some insulin, unskinny bop. <laughs> I just love that when he ran out of things to say, he just started saying song titles for yes. his band. Yes. <laughs> Isn't Vince Neil supposed to be like, uh, like losing 40 pounds for the Serena tour, going to sound amazing? He looks great. <laughs> yes. He doesn't that look video you only you don't even see a neck. He doesn't look swollen at all. Yeah, exactly. Vince Neil went from He switched from dark liquors to clear liquors. Yeah, Pete, yeah, cut dude. Him some slack. That dude 
Does, Looks that like you, does that help you? Dude. Happy birthday, brother. Hey, bro. Hey, Taco. I just got stuck. He says stuck. happy birthday, brother, like he's holding back a burp. Yeah. Happy birthday, brother. Yeah. Instead of like Rick and Morty. <laughs> hey, Taco. You yeah, but let's, I, let's, let's pause for a second. I know I'm devil's advocate on Vince Neil this week, but can you imagine his life? He can fuck up a billion times over and still... He can be awful on stage. He can, he can do things like this, right? And he gets to party till the end, man. Nobody cares. You're right. Yeah, still support the, the shit First off, the end could be next week. Well, that's what I'm saying. Like, dude, If he keeps drinking that healthily on balconies, that's, we're yeah. going to be doing a different kind of way, episode. That, and it's not like the sun was going down. No. It was like, dude, that was like noon. noon. Yeah, that is before noon sun. I'm hey, not, Taco. Hey. Happy birthday, brother. <laughs> Hey, Taco, I'm watching Saturday morning cartoons, baby, on Skinny Bop. Vince Neil is 59 years old. (laughs) He looks a thousand times so bad. So my my point is, I'm not saying he looks good. My point is is that this was like the lifestyle that he wanted to in the 80s. This is what he he went for. Hey, Taco, I'm too young to fall in love. He's living it up. He's doing it. Uh, it's it's embarrassing, but it doesn't affect him. In any, nothing can affect Vince Neil. He had a sex tape before it was cool, right? Yeah. It didn't affect him. Actually, he made it cool. No. I think Tommy Lee made it cool. Nothing can affect Pamela you when you have neuropathy from chronic drinking yes. <laughs> because you literally can't feel good. Hey, your nerves are he, dead. He beat somebody <laughs> up out here with Nicolas Cage screaming at him while he was beating up a woman in Vegas. Yeah, Remember he pulled that? her hair. Yeah. Pulled her hair. Like, it was like, seriously, he pulled her hair like it was one of those... Uh, he said, like shattered he was, the devil, Tucker. Like he was, like he was <laughs> he ringing a bell. Yeah. Like, it was just like he was like he was at the like he was at the top of the Notre Dame Chapel and he's just like, hey, bitch, bomb. And Nicolas Cage was like, no, no. No, no, stop it, no. <laughs> Didn't affect his career at all. We're not uh, laughing at the woman getting hey, beaten. We're laughing at the fact that hey, Nicholas Cage. Hey, happy birthday, rat tail Jimmy, sick and had a hoodie. <laughs> when Nicholas Cage, or Nicholas Cage, I apologize. I love Nicholas Cage. But the point is, uh, when Vince Neil tours and by himself does the solo thing and, and doesn't do the arena tours. Hey, Dago. <laughs> hey, I've seen him do his solo thing. He doesn't not only not try, people don't want him to try. No. They just want him to come out no. and like... They're like, Vince... I literally want him... I will pay a $100 ticket price to FaceTime with him drunk for an no. hour. Seriously, I'm going to tell you what would happen. He'll, would be, he'll, he'll, he'll be in and out of consciousness. No, no. That's what I'm saying. It would be like drunk. Instead of like dead weekend at Bernie's, he'd be drunk weekend at Bernie's. And it would just be him just standing there with his eyes taped open and somebody grabbing the bottom of his chin and making it talk. <laughs> I will I will pay $1,000 to go to the buffet with him and not even speak to him. Just hang out with him while he eats. That's it. Oh, wow, dude. that seems so, like a specific well, fetish, Pete. Some that tells me, seems... Some tells me you're going to get covered in food. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know that dude eats like a lion, bro. I, that's, I just want to watch just, that guy. That guy take. You know how like when a dog gets a toy and just whips it back and forth. That's yeah. what he does with crab legs. It's the way I imagine Rob Reiner eats. You know, like through the food, <laughs> yeah. he doesn't. Oh, that's because of South Park. <laughs> yeah, that's because that's, of that's South how Park. it's in my head. Rob yeah. Reiner's okay. He's, I don't know if he's okay, but whatever. I mean, so, anyways, <laughs> now that we've I think bashed Vince Neil for ten minutes, next week we'll probably do it again. Or he'll, hey, he'll do his favorite. Back to the matters. Vince is winning. Vince is winning. He's like that Charlie Sheen Vince winning thing top. where everybody's looking at him like, oh, how sad. How how uh, awful. I hope he gets help. But and then I hope essence, he doesn't. It's hilarious. In essence, like, so I happy. guess everybody doesn't want it. Exactly what I was about to say. But everybody. You're the life of the party. When Charlie Sheen came out, he's like, yeah, I got HIV. We're like, yeah. Well, All right, Chuck. Whatever. Whatever. Got whatever. Just keep doing your, your sitcom. Yeah. We're fine. 
<laughs> it's all good, buddy. You're winning, right? So anyways. Uh, Sam Elliott's going to play a flight attendant next week? Let's do this. Giddy up. <laughs> I don't even know what that reference meant. It's to Two and a Half Men. They just It was just like a cameo every week by the last oh, wow. two seasons. Okay. I, I accept. <laughs> Next story. Next story. You ever hear like... You, you How know, do you top this, by the way? Uh, we're not going to top it. Okay. This, is, we're, we're, this is all downhill from so, here. Yeah, good. And <laughs> the show just took a sharp turn <laughs> We'll downwards. top it with the interview with Devin in yeah. about five minutes. How about that? Okay. How drunk is Devin? He's totally okay, sober. Okay, so it's going to be... And, it's, I don't know about top. It'll be lateral move. He doesn't and, and call so, you PETA? Yeah. <laughs> no. Hey, uh, <laughs> great, great check. Wise man, dude. I love talking to Devin. So anyways... Uh, hey, Euro. You, you ever hear what like... What, I, do the, I do interviews all the time, as you guys know. You guys do interviews. And the, the point is, is that Every now and then, someone will say something completely obvious, and you have to act like you're surprised. I'm like, yeah, really? Is that right? Randy Bly says on the new Lamb of God album, this whole record is political. Yeah. <laughs> it right. just feels like so. Wow. It feels like when like, like a kid like, like tries to announce something shocking to the family, and everyone's just sort of like, uh-huh. yeah. Yeah, it's like yeah. when your flaming gay cousins like on Thanksgiving, guys, I got a special announcement. I'm gay. Passion potatoes. Yeah, you know? we're like, like, all right. Who cares? We, we, yeah, no, nobody cares. You asked no, us to start not. calling you princess 10 yeah. years ago. We let's exactly. move on. If that headline said, this whole record is about Beanie Babies, let's talk. That, you know what that's what news. What the fuck? Yeah, wow. Checkmates about Beanie Babies? Let's go. Like, there's the conversation I want to hear Randy have. But yeah, yeah, I would love to hear hey. a Lamb of God song about yeah. that Princess Diana. A beanie baby. Yeah, please. <laughs> that riff is evil. <laughs> yeah. Sing a song about Funko toys. You always go back to the to the redneck video. It's like the Lamb of God video that makes no sense to their entire career. Randy Bly's got a shaved head with a goatee. There's kids at a party. It's all like clown shit. You're like, who 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 took your band and made you another band for like one video? And yeah. Then said, Fuck well, it. I think it was a joke. I think they were just trying to be funny. It, it was that. a joke, but it really doesn't fit well. In no, their, it doesn't. Well, it's about, the whole song is about George Bush. I know. And it's like, and it's, but then he, but they're rocking out at a kid's Whoa, birthday party. What do you party. mean the song's about George Bush? Well, you're talking about W. I'm talking about Taco. Wow, that that's a political. Happy birthday, thing. brother. Happy birthday, <laughs> W. Still excited about the record. Just just uh, the headline was a little bit like okay it's so like it's literally like that meme where it's like no one <laughs> it's like lamb of god this whole album's political yeah. It's like, oh. yeah we know man cool. <laughs> it was like it was like the yeah, headline gonna, that, he might as well have just said there's gonna be music on this album <laughs> yeah it's like <laughs> what are you talking about <laughs> it's like the headline rage against the machine tour sells out who saw that coming oh, right oh, whoa, no, whoa. Whoa. <laughs> whoa this blew my mind like people weren't like upping their internet speeds days before to try and get the first tickets it seems like this has been in the works forever though this rage against the machine reunion it's to like, me no i didn't see it coming me I, did. I didn't see it coming yeah, at all. i saw it coming i thought zach was like fuck it i'm happy i'm just gonna do my uh, run the jewels or whatever he's been doing so anyways excited about the new lamb of god record obviously but mm, political whatever but it's the whole thing's political wow yeah. mm. shocker exactly mm. System of a Down puts out political record. Oh, no, they don't put out records. Okay. But what is this, an M. Night Shyamalan oh, movie? We saw this coming. Burn. Yeah. That wasn't a sick What burn. a twist. <laughs> what was a sick <laughs> My favorite story of the week, I don't know if it matters, Danny DeVito went to a Mr. Bungle reunion show. That's amazing. Uh, uh, first off, your favorite story of the week should have been Vince Neil. No, I didn't, about, Taco. I didn't care about that. Taco, look. We got way more joy out of that than we did about Danny DeVito going to Mr. Bungle. So... I don't know, man. You you take you take Danny DeVito, this great legend. Guess what always you're doing? Sunny in Philadelphia. Guess what you're not Mike doing? Patton, put him in the same house. Guess it's, what you're not good. doing? Guess what you're not doing? You're not laughing. There's no joy on your face. There's no smile of you talking about it. Vince Neil being drunk brought us 
thousands of miles of joy. I feel, I feel bad for him. You know me. Okay, there you go. Do you? Oh, it's funny. It, it, we it's, were you laughing can't, you... and having fun. <laughs> no, I was. I was. Here but comes it's... the joy kill. Uh, and on that note, <laughs> I kill joy daily. Let's jump into my interview, guys, with Devin Townsend. Everybody, what's going on? It's Petter, Metal Sucks Podcast. Back on the show, Devin Townsend. We're here to promote the North American tour out here, the Empath Tour for 2020. It's starting February 26th. It's running all the way till March 25th. And uh, I'll tell you something right now, man. It's been selling out as uh, if people have been paying attention to the social media. Um, do you feel, do you correlate that as an artist to the latest record you put out? Uh, as in, I'm a sellout, maybe. <laughs> no, I, uh, I don't know, man. I, I feel that there's that old Woody Allen quote that I keep coming back to where he's like, if you just keep showing up, eventually they have a chair for you. I think there's a, a certain amount of that in my career. I just have been doing what I do for so long that eventually it's, it's gained traction as a result of the perseverance. And the record is, is I think it got people's attention, um, in ways that uh, the records leading up to it, maybe we're running the risk of, of losing people's attention with. And uh, I guess the long, long answer is I have no idea, man. I just keep doing what I do in hopes that, that it resonates. Yeah, no, the reason I ask that question uh, sometimes is because the record was really well received. It, um, our, our expectations for your output is already very, very high. And wow. so, well, you know, you've been doing it for years, like you said, uh, when you compare yourself to an artist like, uh, or I don't know if you compare yourself, but when you use a quote to an artist like Woody Allen, and you look at all the risks that he took throughout his career to yeah. find that genuine voice, there's pockets in his career where you're like, he's, he's discovering, he's discovering, whoa, Midnight in Paris, you know, like, and oh, yeah. Empath kind of had that where there was like a little bit of, you know, casualties are cool, a little bit of stuff that you're, and then boom, there's Empath, you know, and. And uh, as an artist, though, the steps of trying before you hit this kind of stride or this work that really resonates with everybody, what's the fun part? Hitting that stride or doing the, the records beforehand? I think the, the funnest part of the creative process for me is when you're in that moment at the very inception of it where you get uh, a burst of the vision for what it is that you're ultimately hoping to achieve. There's... This, there's this turning point in that moment where you're aware of what the potential of it could be and how all these pieces of your world and all these pieces of your experience that start pinpointing themselves to that emotional moment uh, start to make sense. And I love that. I love that, man. I live for that. And everything past that, well, I mean, not everything, but a lot of it after that is just legwork. You know, I was saying to another friend of mine that as a professional musician, 80% of my work is logistics. 80% of my work is emails and, and edits and, and solving computer problems and, and dealing with the financial implications of, of all these sorts of things. And, and the creative moments that guide these things to fruition are, are, are such a small part of it, but, man, so profoundly uh, enticing, man, that I, I, I just... I keep doing it in hopes that there's more of them. Can't we relate that to, for everybody out there, like maybe love, 80% of relationships is work, 
but it's that mm-hmm. 20% of that moment that you share with your best friend or whoever your partner is that you kind of is do you feel that there's a correlation between those th- two things certainly i also feel though that um and this is something i've been thinking about because i don't know about you man but it's been a fucking hell of a month holy shit dude like just relentless relentlessness right and um i feel that um my work is a byproduct of just trying to make myself you know better a better version of who i am or you know just to try and become a more refined um and version of your nature right and and that process is just you just keep unfolding and you keep removing layers from your own bullshit and you're just like trying to call yourself on things as you go. And, and I find that the records and the work in general functions as a byproduct of that. So as you get through a certain period, whether or not it's, uh, it's surrounded by death or, or adolescence or middle age or your mid twenties or, or anger or any of these sorts of emotional moments, um, that, I guess on some level either cause problems or confound you, then the creative side of my identity almost functions as a way to sort through those things because I don't have any interest in, in being a martyr. I don't have any interest in, in recognizing the ways in which my, my nature is dysfunctional and then reveling in it. I mean, the goal has been to, once you recognize something is to work through it is to, to, analyze it and my particular method of analysis is just through sound so each one of these moments uh, are, are just a uh, 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 reflection of that and some of them like empath that maybe are a little bit more um, uh, dramatic in terms of their scope or in terms of how much they uh, sort of uh, present to the audience is just also indicative of the fact that that happens in life too. You may go for a couple of years with your, your personality and your observations of, of how things are progressing with your family, your kids or your parents getting older or dying or, or any of these things, you know, there, there's, there's lulls in that. And then your creative catalyst becomes a little more subtle, but then there's real significant moments. Middle age being one that I've just discovered is, 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 profound right there's a lot that changes as the kids get older and as your body starts to change and your connection to who it was that you were and and why you did what you do um it falls into question and the empath as a project uh and the reason why it's dynamically so all over the place was more of a reflection of once hitting middle age my um creative motivations almost became pinpointed to trying to pull apart my past work and analyze my relationship with each aspect of it. And by doing that, I think you remove a certain amount of fear. I think you remove a certain amount of, of guilt or trepidation. And uh, as much as it may seem like the motivation to do that is to progress forward strictly on a creative level, again, the creativity is a sideline to the actual objective, which is just to unfuck yourself, right? Yes, dude. That's I, I completely understand. I love growing older. You know, um, I do. I feel like uh, there's peace in every day that goes by because of lessons, you know. Um, totally. And, if you're willing to listen, right? Exactly. And I was just, yeah, exactly. That's exactly what I was saying. But 
that was, it took me years to stop and listen, not just to others, but to myself, you know, and um, lose that, that cycle of, of, I don't know, embracing drama or need to be cool or I don't know, like there's, there's so many things that are taught as, at a young age that like, you don't feel like you're part of the pack until you're part of the drama, you know, it's, it's well, I think it's, I think it's addictive. I mm-hmm. think that there's a amount of adrenaline that comes from having to, you know, try and try and coast through this. And, but I think to be fair as well, and also to play devil's advocate, these are things that, that do come with age. And I, I think to, to try and teach people who are in their mid twenties, that that is something that should be uh, sought after uh, is is useless. I know for myself that in my mid twenties, what I needed to to figure out at that point was where I was at. You know, like with strapping and with Terry and Ocean Machine, and you know, drugs and 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 anger and hostility and and all these things. Um, when I even when I was going through those moments, I, it wasn't something that I was. Um, you know, uh, like um, trying to make uh, into like a romantic frame of mind. Uh, even at the time, I was like, "This fucking sucks. I don't want to feel like this." But I just don't know. I didn't have the mechanisms at that point to understand that a good deal of that was my own trip. You know, like the reason why is because, like you said, we're taught to embrace these things and to uh, and to uh, view drama as almost like uh, like something that we need to uh participate in for the i don't know social cred that comes along with it i don't know no that's how it is i mean i got this crazy like almost joke compliment from my mom last christmas and and I'll, i'll remember this forever and she doesn't even think it matters but she looked at me and she said, you know what? I, I like you. And I'm like, oh, thanks, mom. You know, she's supposed to love me and all that stuff. But she goes, for a while, I don't think I liked you, but now I really like you. I'm like, oh, okay. So I think I broke through my asshole phase with my mother. <laughs> and, like, and she gave me this mode of like, all right, I turned out all right. Well, biologically, I mean, kids have to be dickheads to their parents at a certain amount of time or else, you know, I think, and I'm paraphrasing because I don't remember exactly where I read this, but it was something along the lines of, the ways that um, we as mammals evolve into uh, self-sufficient versions of ourselves, it requires us to rebel against the parents almost as a a way for us to train our offspring and ourselves to deal with the the antagonistic world that's out there, right? So I'm suspicious of, of, of any kid that uh, didn't find a moment where they were like you know fuck you mom fuck you dad and uh, and vice versa i remember my folks as well on a number of occasions my my mother's thinking well we we thought we had lost you for sure you know you were just you were just gone and uh but i wonder how much of that is just just biology just like as a species that's it's programmed into us to do that or else we'd never leave the nest you know mhm yeah, that's very true. That's very true. I, I, I interviewed Derek Green a little while ago, and I really liked the quote he said. He goes, you know, growing up, it's about me, 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 but the world is about us, us, us type of thing. And it's like you, you don't realize that without living because when, you're, when you have nothing and you, have, you can't take care of yourself and all these little things that are needed for you to matter, you know, um, the things that when you're a kid you lie about, like, yeah, I'm this and this, I got money, you know, whatever you know, type of thing. 
you don't realize you're part of a, a, a bigger picture until you... Well, I don't think we're taught that that's actually even a thing now. And, and this is what's unfortunate. I think this puts us in the position that we're in now, too, is as much of as a species, <coughs> we are all in this together and we're reliant on each other for all aspects of, of modern life. I mean, the rhetoric that we're fed is that you got to be... And it's true. You got to watch out. You got to be careful. You got to be suspicious of the intent of, of people. And, and it's in direct opposition to maybe what's fundamentally at, uh, you know, the, the, the core of human nature. I actually saw something the other day I thought was really interesting when they were, they were talking about um, the Big Bang and whether or not one subscribes to that. Their, their uh, analogy in terms of how it reflects to people was based on an experiment where they took a particle and separated it. So they, they split this particle, and again, I'm paraphrasing, but they then took both halves of these particles and, and put them seven miles away from each other. And then when they reacted, or when they, when they acted on one, the one seven miles away from it uh, would react to it. And in some situations prior to the action that was carried out on the other. And uh, what I took from that, which I thought was interesting, is that... Um, you know, the, the, the idea of things being uh, in unity to each other means that um, when something happens to one, it happens to the other. And then when they look at the idea of the Big Bang, that if it all started as a singularity, then the whole idea that everything, specifically people and animals and planets and universes and whatever, were at one time together as well. So as much as it is an us-us-us situation in a, in a utopian sort of sense, we find ourselves now just like so distanced and so antagonistic towards each other out of a practical reaction to how fucked up things are that, you know, we're confused as to why when one uh, particular portion of society suffers, everybody suffers in another way, right? And But how do we figure out our way around it? I just don't know if we're evolutionarily equipped to uh to deal with that in in a sense i feel like our 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 brains have grown faster than our you know compassion ever could and maybe we're just dealing with the ramifications of that now i think a lot of it has to do with words having more meaning than actions too um which i i find more and more um in today's society is that you can say something hateful disgusting and get a reaction from thousands of people just sure. to react and it's like but those words are meaningless could be a flat-out lie you can say yet the reaction is there and to to piggyback on what you just said is that if anybody's ever had a child that's the one thing i learned after my first boy is that i was like look he, it's a baby it's a worm it's got nothing but if i came at it with this positive energy of joy and happiness a smile would come out crying totally. would stop all these things and i'm like i'm not doing anything but if I'm frustrated and I pick him up and I'm like, go to sleep, nothing gets better. It's just oh, yeah, this, this connection of energy. And so totally. I would go in a corner, take a couple breaths before I approached him when he was crying, and it worked every time. I think there's I, – I, you know what? I, I Absolutely. I mean, being a father myself, I, I relate to that you know, unequivocally. I, and I also think going back to the last statement there, I just think that – a lot of times the the reasons for those things get sort of wrapped up in the kind of new agey 
rhetoric, you know, the energy and vibe and all this sort of thing. But I think, again, going back to the thing that we were just talking about, I just don't think we're evolutionarily equipped to understand the ways in which patterns and energy uh, transmit between people. And I think it happens instantaneously. And I think it happens in ways far more subtle than we're able to, to comprehend. Therefore, a lot of times it, again, it gets all wrapped up in religion or, or spirituality. And when in fact, perhaps we're just, we're just not particularly in tune with a system that, uh, that everything is connected energetically. And maybe that's why music is so important because by by uh by creating sounds you're basically finding ways through the speakers to manipulate the vibrations in an environment so i think that there's a lot that you can do as an artist to um represent to your audience what it is that your intention is if you're clear enough with it from the onset which a lot of times is where the majority of my work comes into when i'm when i'm making a record is, is like, okay, look, how do I define this period? How do I summarize this particular um, collection of vibrations in song form that uh, when I'm working on it, by the time it's finished, by the time the experience of listening to it is over, you're able to really pinpoint what it is that you're trying to achieve. And in the past, I was shooting from the hip in every direction and, and experimenting with things, you know, like Alien or Infinity or all these things. And they would have these these effects on myself and you know certain people that I was like, well, how did that happen? Why did that happen? So when it comes to something like empath or, or what I'm hoping to do in the future, any of us, I'm just using myself as an example, um, to be able to identify, okay, what it is, what is it that I want people at the end of this experience to participate in? And if I can identify within myself what it is that I was feeling during it, then uh, hopefully the work that goes into it, that 80% logistics of making music goes into being able to accurately create that vibration. And you talk about your son and you talk about um, being able to uh, represent through those moments something that even a child can can understand. I think it's, uh, I think it's no different with, with adults in music, man, but I don't know. I'm just in a rambling frame of mind today, as always. No, no, I, I, I completely agree with you. I've actually had this thought of like when people always, when I try to introduce them to a band that's maybe cinematic, you know, let's just take, uh, for example, Cult of Luna or something like that. Sure. Like, I don't understand what they're saying. I go, that doesn't matter. You get the booklet, you read what they're saying later. Just listen, you know, and that's my first take. I go, you feel the genuine, you know, feeling, the emotion, you feel what they're you're doing and then nine times out of ten for me even though i don't know what the lyrics are saying exactly until i get that booklet when i read them i'm like that's exactly what i was feeling i think what comes down what what springs to mind when you say that is with with music and art in general uh oftentimes in my in my social circles talking to friends we have a debate about accountability in music and and what that means and i think a lot of times my point with it gets misconstrued as as like some sort of morality thing where where what i'm saying about the need to be accountable with what you do is based on you know making sure that you say the right things and you don't offend people and all that and that's it's actually um 
that's actually completely aside from my point. My point is if you aren't aware of the energy that you're able to wield and you throw it out there, you can run the risk of something uh, emotionally impactful being misconstrued uh, by people who typically wouldn't. I mean, you're always going to find people who are going to weed into whatever you do, something that is their own projection and their own agenda. But I think it's really important for uh, myself, at least, to define clearly at the at the onset of, of a project, okay, what is your intention with this one? And Empath, for example, the reason why that one was a pain in the dick to make was because I realized that over the past few years, I had become so um, freaked out by my own propensity to make aggressive and, and uh, like, uh, you know, uh, intense, heavy music as, as I, I sort of interpret it as like some sort of creative aberration. Like on some level, I was um, manifesting some sort of damage from my past in a way that was going to cause me on a personal level more harm than good because in the past not being accountable to that consciously just drew all that shit to me you know i'd make something that was super hostile and then i'd just be surrounded by super hostile shit and i you know it took me years to realize that you know that was um something that that i was asking for in a lot of ways so with empath the biggest thing that i was trying to do with that was well how do i make peace with that particular part of my creative identity and make sure that going into it, uh, I'm aware that not only is that something that is me and isn't like an aberration, it isn't something that needs to be vilified, but it's also a part of me that I would do well to be able to um, have some sort of sense of compassion for. Like, how do I incorporate a part of me that in the past was clearly fucked up, clearly in need of uh, an ear rather than just to be silenced? And so to make that collision between where I am and where I was, was really healthy, but also uh, frightening for me as an artist, because I'm thinking, God, I don't want people to misinterpret that as being just, um, you know, I'm trying to be, or I'm just being irresponsible with that sort of energy. And then by the end of it, perhaps going back to your first question, about empath and and why it resonated uh with people in ways that some of the other stuff maybe hasn't was perhaps there is an awareness from people all along that that well we knew that that's just who you are maybe the person that needed to figure that shit out was me right and um hooray <laughs> <laughs> because man you know, I, I got a few things going for me, but like foresight and peripheral vision is clearly not one of those, man. It's like, it's not until I'm right on something that I realize what the fuck I'm doing. And I, and that's also, that was also with empath was a, was a total, um, it made it difficult as well, because in the beginning I remember going to an IHOP with a notebook and just getting some shitty breakfast and just thinking, okay, before you start this next project, Take a moment this time, because a lot of times you don't do this. You just sort of run on uh, instinct, and then it's more difficult for you in the long run because you're not clear about your objectives from the onset. So this time, write down what your objectives are. So after jotting down some sort of tentative song titles and tentative album titles, 
I wrote down, uh, and I don't remember the exact wording, but it was something like, I spent much of my life intellectualizing my emotions without participating in them, because I think that is a very convenient defense mechanism for people who are analytical like myself. So in the past, people would say, okay, well, how do you feel about X? How do you feel about your grandmother dying? How do you feel about, you know, this particular moment that was really frightening for you? And I'd be able to like articulate my emotional reaction to it in a way that was completely detached from actually participating in it. And so this time I was like, I need to participate in this shit. Otherwise, uh, I'm just living in a bubble. You know, it's like you're not actually, there's no growth there. It's just this kind of smug analysis. And in some ways, you know, you got to be careful what you wish for as well, because uh, on the process of making it, fortunately, the, the people that were sort of drawn into the orbit of it were people who were very much in line with that, you know, like Keneally and Morgan and all these cats, right? But, um, but uh, man, I remember all of a sudden just when that, when that um, when that threshold broke and all that sort of repressed emotion, whether or not it was anger or sadness or fear or whatever came through, dude, it was starting to come through in completely inappropriate moments too. Mm-hmm. Watching a Tylenol commercial and you're just like, he's so sad. You know what I mean? And you're just like, what the fuck? How am I supposed to go out and deal with like a parent teacher conference when a Tylenol commercial is making me cry? Like this is fucking fucked up. Right? So, Working through that, though, was really, really healthy. And I can't imagine that my experience with this is unique. You know, I, I think that this is, we're taught as a, as a society, specifically North American society, to repress that shit, you know, at all costs, right? A hundred percent. I feel like the same journey, like I went through as, as, a, as a person. And you said like, hey, I always look back and I'm like, hey, I learned from it, and that's kind of how it was. Because growing up, when when you're younger, like you kind of learn this alarmist rhetoric to get a reaction, because that's kind of a point you want to do. And then you learn later, hey, I can say the same thing without being alarming. And then, wow, you notice that people will actually listen to you, and then maybe talk to you, opposed to you know get angry with you. And I do feel a lot of us, it takes a long way for us to go the slow route and trying to explain our feelings or what we're saying instead of just blurting it out and not caring about anybody else's feelings after we say it, you know? Yeah, yeah, but I also think that it's going to be slow whether or not we think we're taking the fast route. So we might as well just take it slow, right? Because, exactly. You, and I, you know, it's funny, too. It's like um, it's the devil we know as well. Like, you know, I've been married 30 years now, man, and it's like... Congrats have, to that, by the way. Yeah, super easy. Um <laughs> What I find in that, not only that relationship, but also long-term relationships with, with friends as well, is that we adopt this, again, devil-you-know psychology that is super unconscious, where maybe there's been this dynamic between you where one person plays a victim and the other person accepts the role as being the person that's causing them you know, harm. and But maybe that's just a product of a particular period of a relationship that no longer exists yet you get so caught up in that in that dynamic that you find yourself sort of going through these tired motions where specifically when it comes to arguments when you're just like dude we're fucking we're not arguing about what we want to have for dinner 
we're arguing about that same thing that we've been arguing about that is no longer even, a, it doesn't even exist, but it's just, that's become our dynamic. Mm-hmm. And I think that bands are um, one of the, the, the hardest uh, things to cope with that. Specifically for me, I've realized, is speaking about taking the, the, the long road, I realized I just, I'm, I'm really not a great band member. I, uh, the the way that my creativity functions best is if I can kind of um, uh, be the vision for it and then sort of delegate that and then have a rotating cast of people that I incorporate that allows me to articulate each one of those ideas in the most accurate way. But being in a band, dude, it's like being married, but you're just there's no sex, there's no you know, there's no watching TV, there's you know, it's like. It's like, well, maybe there's watching TV, and I guess for some people there's sex. But, I mean, my point is, is it's, like, it's like you're being married to, like, five people that you're friends with, but it's not the same as, like, what it requires to hold a marriage or a relationship together. So at a certain point, I just think to myself, ah, I just don't want to do this. I just don't want to do this. Maybe eventually I'll find myself in an actual band with a bunch of people who are contributing members in the exact same capacity. And I don't have an emotional investment in being the person who had a vision that I'm trying to chase maybe. And, you know, I can see that being really nice in the future. Right. But, but, you know, I've learned the hard way now after trying to have band after band, after band, after band, I'm just like, fuck that, man. I am not good as a band member. In fairness though, as a fan, it works out this way better. You not being a band member for for us, and, and I mean, as as the audience goes, we can uh, talk about the lineup you do have coming out here to the North American tour, uh, sure. and all that stuff. Which is uh, you brought up Keneally uh, from Death Clock, if I remember, and then uh, Morgan's on drums, um, Diego from Haken is uh, yeah. still in the band, and then I forgot who else we had in there. I missed some people. Uh, yeah, so Nathan Navarro is. Uh... He's, he's a YouTube bass player that I met through a mutual friend who's who's amazing. And um, Che, who's my buddy who sang with me in this band, Casualties of Cool. And she uh, she's helping me out because I have so much of my work involves multiple voices, you know, that uh, that I always uh, want to have like, uh, uh, you know, a partner in crime on stage with me. And Annika, whom I have worked with a lot, but uh, we both have very busy careers, right? So I'm hoping to hook up with the, her again in the summer. But um, but yeah, so Keneally was with Zappa for years mm. and um, acted as, you know, uh, musical director. And uh, it was with Saturnani for years and XTC and Todd Rundgren and yeah, he did Death Clock. And, you know, he was with um, band uh, uh, Lustmord. Uh, dude, his 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 um his CV is is longer than than you know most people's resumes just full stop. He's you know another ten years older than me, but because of his time with Zappa and because of his time with like all these kind of cats that had a really strong vision, um, he kind of came into my orbit uh, orbit and uh, contacted me years before empath and we just started working together and writing some some you know interesting but wanky material and um and um 
when it came time for empath, it just having somebody that was uh, a voice, an extra brain for me, it's like additional RAM, um, allowed me to to offshore some of the process. And, and even when we were writing or when I was writing it and recording it, I asked him to come and participate, but he's just such a great thinker and a brilliant musician that just having someone like that around me uh, has been just terrific, man. And I, he's just such a good dude and such an incredible musician. Morgan, um, Morgan Ogren, the drummer. I mean, uh, I mean, a lot of people know him because he did the special defects album with, with Frederick all those years ago. And, you know, he's been with a ton of people like Magma, this French band, and he's got his own band, Mats and Morgan. And I think he was with Alan Holdsworth and, uh, you know, he's, Oh, he was also with Zappa, and and he's a really good friend. He's sort of early fifties age, and uh, uh, I asked him to be involved because he had been on the Empath record, and I just know that because him and Mike had played together with Zappa years ago, that they would have a good rapport between the two of them. And again, you know, Mike's got kids, Morgan's got kids. It's it's easy in that front. Uh, Diego contacted me because Haken was opening the shows in Europe and uh, now they're doing it, you know, the direct support in, in North America as well. And he contacted me and said, hey, I'm going to be on the road with you. I appreciate your material. If you would like someone to play the keyboards, please let me know and I will do it great and do it great every night. And I thought, well, that's the, that's the best thing someone said to me in a lot of years. And he, he's ended up being a phenomenal uh, attribute to this because um, it allows us to not use backing tracks and you know click tracks and and all these things that has become such a a part of the scene you know this 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 it's almost like karaoke and I was guilty of it with my last band as well to not do that with this allows a lot more uh, space for improv and having those sorts of people involved uh, you know you couldn't think of a better group of improvisational players. And Nathan as well, like if you watch his YouTube channel, he's just a brilliant player, really calm guy. He's got a voice like the Marlboro Man. He's, he's like good dude, you know, and, um, and uh, but his YouTube channel is uh, immensely successful and he does all sorts of really acrobatic playing on there and, and testing gear and everything. But just as a solid entity that is a calming presence and also has a great um, uh, improvisational sort of tool book or tool bag. Uh, he's amazing. And then Che, uh, again, I, I use choirs and I use female vocalists a lot because I like having that sort of um, textural dynamic in the music between, you know, a male voice and a female voice. And, and um, but we've been, kind of, you know, we're really good friends and she's in Vancouver and we did the Casualties of Cool record together and that's a very different thing than anything that I've done. And in fact, at first I was wondering how it would work to have her involved with something that's like, you know, like on the North American tour, I, I play stuff from the entire career, you know, like between strapping and casualties and DTP and DTB and Terry and infinity. It's like everything. But it turns out that she's just such a, a calm personality and she's got such a, a cool vibe to the way she, uh, interpret stuff that as a quote-unquote band it's fucking fantastic man oh i'm excited i i swear that sounds excellent now you just brought up that you might be playing some strapping young lad songs um yeah 
And you might... If any on this tour, if any on this tour, I'll just do like one or two. But I think that um, uh, when it comes time, like in the summer when I'm doing all the festivals, basically my idea for that, backing up a little bit, every tour that I've done since Empath has been released is basically I'm trying to build a bridge between what I did with Empath and what I'm going to do next with the Moth. So uh, as much as it may make more business sense for me to really listen and just say, okay, what is it that people want to hear right now? I'll do that. Uh, it makes more sense conceptually for me to work through what it is that I feel I want to represent live one tour at a time. So it started with the acoustic run, stripping it down to nothing, right? So it's just me and an acoustic guitar representing the stuff. And that was really successful for me. And then the volume one band, which I did in Europe and now I'm bringing to North America is almost like a, almost like a tasting menu of the entire career, but also um, veering towards the things that I really want to do like personally want to do from the catalog. Then moving into the next thing, volume two, which I'm starting by doing, dude, we're doing all these festivals. We're doing the Rock and Ring, Rock and Park, and Bloodstock, and Tuska, and Vakken, and Hellfest, dude, all of these festivals. And that is a different group of people, um, which is an amazing group of people unto itself, uh, that I basically did a poll online and said, what do you want to hear from the entire catalog, strapping included? And for the volume two thing, which I will then bring to North America later, is those songs, which is a shitload of strapping, a shitload of DTP, a shitload of, like all the stuff that people want to hear. And then from there, prior to doing the moth, I'm going to do a volume three, and I actually don't know what that is yet. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I think that uh, one thing at a time, and this one that we're going to do next is still the volume one. It's a lot of improv uh it's a lot of material from all aspects of my career, including a strapping song or two, but not focused on it. And it's just the best players that, that you can find, right? Nice. Yeah, that's exciting. Yeah. And, but you, it keeps everything. And that's really unique. You know, you can see a band or an artist twice a year, let's just say, and have the same experience. Dude, you know? Exactly. That's the whole idea. I want every time I come through to be something different. And so... You know, in the summer, I've got like a band, uh, but it's like a four-person band. So, um, you know, it's like at this point, it looks like uh, Wes, uh, who played with me on the, the 70,000 Tons of Metal Cruise. Wes Hoke, who was in Faceless and Glass Casket and everything. Dude, that guy is such a fucking good guitar player. Holy shit. And, um, and I've got this Cat Krim playing drums who was um, with Septic Flesh and Decapitated and Behemoth and like, you know, super strong player and he can blast with the same sort of volume that he does with the, with the groovy stuff. And uh, it looks like it's going to be Liam who used to be in Dillinger Escape Plan playing bass, right? Nice. Yeah, and really great guys, super competent players, good vibe. And I want that, that tour, the Volume 2 thing, to be completely different. I want it to be like, open it up to the audience and say, what do you want to hear? So there's 25 records full of shit. There's Strapping, there's Terria, there's Ziltoid, there's DTP, there's DTB, there's like all the shit. Tell me what you want to play or want me to play and I'll play that. And so that's the tour after this one that's coming up. 
Exciting, man. I got to tell you, that's, that's good. That's that. Thank you so much for doing that as a fan, because I, I'll see my favorite bands, you know, many times in a year and the set list will change maybe a song or two. Don't get me wrong. I appreciate it. And I have a great time, but I forget the shows just blend into each other. So again, as an artist, I guess that's what ended up happening towards the end of both strapping and DTP. I just got super bored of it and it wasn't, the music, it wasn't the guys, it was just the, the, the treadmill, you know what I mean? Like, just like, that's what you do. You put on a record and you go on tour and then you, you hit the B markets six months later and then you, you know what I mean? And it's same set and same backdrop and same speeches between songs and all this shit. And I just, I think there's value to that, but as somebody who's easily, uh, irritated, let alone bored, um, I'm just like, fuck, man, I don't want to do that. If I got to be away from home, I want it to be at least engaging for me personally. So my idea is now every time I do a tour, I want it to be a different thing, and different people, different songs, different vibe, different intention, you know, and then, yeah, and I want to sound great. And I want to look great. And Bob's your uncle. I got to tell everybody one more time. I don't want you guys to miss this, especially here in North America. Devin Townsend's going to be touring with Haken and the Contortionist guys. Make sure you check dates. The shows are selling out. If you're a huge fan of Empath like I am, make sure you don't miss this tour. When Volume 2 comes around, it's going to be a completely different beast. So it's, it's super exciting for us fans. I just wanted to ask you one more question, man. As a fan, like I said, I wanted to congratulate you. Uh, you are headlining, as we were talking about the festival's Bloodstock in August. And um, tell me about your journey just as an artist doing all the festivals the past 20 plus years and now getting that headlining spot on a festival like Bloodstock. Well, um, like all of us, I think when we were kids, you know, I grew up in the 70s, 80s, 90s, obviously born in the 70s, but um, we'd see all those festival shows and that was like you'd fetishize it as as a you know, a teen learning to play guitar. You're like, that's what I want to do. I want to play in front of a lot of people in an outdoor festival, right? That would be so romantic in a sense. And I think earlier on in my career, when I really pined for those sorts of things, um, I might get on a festival, but it seemed just like, like all things in life, the more you really want something, the less it's going to come to fruition. It's almost like I had to sort of, um, just focus on doing what it was that I felt was important for me to get to the point where I could do that. I remember when Empath was being done, I was like, oh, I'm shooting myself in the foot. No one's going to like this thing. And I remember talking to the people involved and like, why don't you think people will like this? And I said, well, because I like it. And I guess my insecurity as an artist had led me to believe that you have to learn what people expect of you and then just sort of try and through you know market analysis or whatever what is it about my trip that people like and how can i fine-tune that and that's the way that you get to be able to play these festivals and and what have you but i didn't realize until empath came out and 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 people reacted to it in the ways that they did that again as i said earlier maybe people knew could see me clearer than i could see myself and by sort of breaking through that fear, I guess, I had of, of being seen as not this image that I had 
felt like I was needing to project to the audience. Like, just be who you are. Be who you are. Man. And two things will happen. Number one, you never have to remember shit because if you're lying about who you are, you've always got to be super vigilant on trying to remember who you would told the line of shit to, right? But to not do that is great because you're just like, yeah, man, this is where I'm at. I think, I think cats and dogs are fucking super cool. And so there you go. I'll put them in a video. And I think that the second thing that happens is if you've had even a modicum of success, once you start being more honest with what you uh, feel you are, then I think that's a time when people will start to say, okay, now you can do these sort of headline slots. Now you can do this because what people are looking for is just really defined versions of, of, of music as opposed to a million different versions of Gajira or a million different versions of Meshuggah or a million different versions of, of any band that's got a really strong identity. Finding that strong identity has been what my path up to doing something like Bloodstock or some of these other festival headline slots I've been uh, given this year uh, have allowed me to do. I didn't realize, man. you got to figure out who you are to become a really defined version of that. And... Um, I'm still on the path, obviously, but uh, I feel I've made significant progress this year. Absolutely. And we're, we're going to keep following the journey as, 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 far, as far as the artist goes. So, Devin, yeah. man, I got to tell you, always a pleasure, always a great conversation. I always, uh, whenever I get off the phone with you, I'm like, hey, I learned something and it motivates me, man. And, and, and your records do that as well, but, you know, I'm lucky enough that get to have that conversation with you once a year or so. Thank you, brother. I mean, I'd be lying if I said that was my intention. like uh, again it's like if there's anything that's like as a byproduct comes from me just like being a fucking disaster then i really think that's awesome and thank you you're very welcome but you just said it just like the music man the 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 honesty and the genuine it, it comes through and i do a lot of interviews and trust me there's a lot of there's a lot of not that, you know, because it's just about the product. And so it's always a, a breath of fresh air for me on my end and uh, all that. So with that, though, I want everybody, don't miss Devin on this North American tour. Check his Facebook. Check his Twitter for tour dates. With that, we got Eros is going to come out, a vinyl box set. I know you're working on that. But in 2021, we just mentioned the Moth is still on the plan for you new music guys that need that. But fuck all that. This year, catch him on tour. That's what you're going to yeah. do. I'll say two more things. First off, I, I just finished the ultimate, or it's called the Empath Ultimate Edition, which I've been mixing it in 5.1 for the past six months, and I think it sounds fucking fantastic. I don't know who's going to be able to hear it, but maybe if you've got a 5.1 system, but it's got documentaries and all sorts of stuff, and it's been, it's it's for the first time I felt like I could actually mix my music in a way that like made sense to me. Um, and then the second thing that I'll say, and the last thing that I'll say is. Um, in line with what we were talking about, how every tour is going to be its own vibe, um, I would encourage people who are interested in what I do to see this because it won't happen again. Each thing that happens, it's like a one-off, right? So I'm um, I'm incorporating certain groups of musicians who I think can establish a very singular sort of aesthetic for each one. But then after it's done, like I'm moving on, I'm doing something different, doing something different. So. So don't miss volume one because uh, next is volume two. Fucking A, man. Everybody, those are words you need to know. So with that, dude, I want to thank you once again, Devin, for calling in to the Metal Sucks podcast. Thanks for all the support, brother. I'll talk to you soon.
the Metal Sucks Podcast.
Metal Sucks Podcast.
we are back, guys. First song you heard is off Empath. Came out last year. Make sure you guys, if you don't own it, pick it up. Uh, that song is called Genesis. Do not miss the North American tour, guys. February 26th all the way till March 25th. Again, with Haken, the contortionist. It's going to be an excellent show. Selling out. Make sure you check dates. Second song you heard, a couple new bands, new tracks we played for you. It's from a band called Loathe. That song is called Screaming, and their record, I Let It In, and It Took Everything Out. comes out February 21st. Last song you heard is from a band called Irist. That track is called Burning Sage, and their record, Order of the Mind, will be out March 27th. So if you enjoyed those track guys, check out those bands. Support new music. Super important. Hey, Decker, mm. this is Vince Neil. I want to say uh, happy birthday, brother. Happy birthday, brother. <laughs> happy birthday. <laughs> birthday, bro. He, he says birthday like, you know when you suck your lips in? Yeah, you got, you, birthday. You, birthday. Like, it's like you suck your lips in, and then when the bee stuns, then your lips pop out. Birthday. <laughs> birthday. Birthday. I want to thank everybody out there for the five-star reviews. We keep getting on the good old iTunes. Thank you guys so much for your support. That's all we ask. Us three over here. Us four. Counting Sylvia, of course. Uh, that's five it. Five counting Vince. Five counting Vince, who, who did carry the show this week. Vince and Devin did. And so I want to thank you guys so much for that. Thank you once again, everybody, for uh, supporting our other podcast, the documentary podcast, Rise to Offend. This week we're tackling... Uh, a great, a great, a great American, John Walsh, and it's a, it's a rough, it's a rough episode for us for sure. So until next week, my friends, the Metal Sucks Podcast is signing off. This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. <laughs>